0: legends you're listening to the off-road performance coach podcast if you want to be a beast on and off the dirt bike you have come to the right place all i ask from you is if you gain some value out of today's episode please give it a share and tag me on your socials or your insta story i'd be super grateful if you'd share the love let's get stuck straight into today's episode. Everything in my life just thinks for me. Hello, podcasters. Back on for another Q&A episode today. Today, we've got all the training-related questions that I've compiled. Again, thank you to everyone that's sending a question. It's awesome to get plenty of great questions. Um, Like I said, definitely keen to do one of these a month, I reckon. So if any of these questions spark any interest or any other questions you might have, don't hesitate to send them through and we will get them included on the next episode for you guys. So first one, nice and simple. So like I say, all these questions are training related. How much exercise is too much exercise? So... Again, like all these questions, but this one especially is a very, very big it depends question. At the end of the day, as an individual person, it really just comes down to managing, first and foremost, managing your overall stress in your lifestyle, which that obviously includes your training load. So to use the bucket analogy again, everything we do basically is filling the bucket up in some way. Um, whether it's training, um, financial stress, um, going to work, running a business, um, relationship stress, uh, and being on antibiotics, having an injury, all of those things, like they all place stress on the system and they're filling the bucket up, essentially. Like even our perception, our perception to our external environment can add stress to that bucket. And what allows the bucket to empty is basically our sleep our hydration and our nutrition for the most part and obviously managing our perception so like mindfulness can be i believe can play a huge role in in managing that overall stress um so at the end of the day like when that bucket becomes too full and it's not supported with enough of those uh enough of the recovery at the bottom of the bucket if you can imagine a tap at the bottom of the bucket and it's opening up the more we sleep the more we meet our calorie um, needs our protein intake etc the more we manage our stress then the more that tap opens up the less of those things we do if we're under eating if we're getting poor quality or lack of sleep if we're stressed to the eyeballs it's like that tap begins to close off and the bucket doesn't empty as quick Eventually, it's going to overflow. We're going to get run down, sick, injured, etc. So, the whole the ideally, we're trying to manage that stress. So, obviously, the the whole premise of training is that the body, like training, is a good stress, um, so long as it's supported with all of those recovery factors, like we've mentioned. So, the body will adapt and will be able to tolerate more load. Obviously, that is the whole purpose of training so we can improve our capacity and tolerate more load so long as we're addressing those recovery components and we're increasing our training volume progressively and not doing anything silly and going from training two hours a week to training 15 hours a week the next week obviously if there's massive fluctuations in our training volume and intensity then that begins to, like, we get a massive influx of stress coming. So that's why it's super important to have, like, it's a, bi- a big benefit of having a coach is they will help you manage that. And that that's a big part of what I do when I'm writing my clients. A program is not just adding more in for the sake of it. It's like looking at what have we done and how have we, how has the client adapted to that? What's the feedback they've given me, the results on the training that they've done and how are they progressing? And sometimes we actually trim it back. Like sometimes we actually do less. So for you, like how do you know how much is too much? The big, most important thing is if if you're training, you obviously want to get better. You want to get fitter. You want to get stronger. And I'm assuming that you're probably racing. So like at the end of the day, that is the the ultimate result that we want to see improving is our performance on the bike. So that's obviously a big one. Are we actually getting better? Like if we're going to add more training in, we want to see a benefit to that. There's no point doing more volume if it doesn't have a, a, any benefit to our performance on the dirt bike. So And then it's so obviously on the bike is a big one. And then it's like, are we actually progressing in our training? Are we getting stronger? Are our metrics like our cardio training, whether you're cycling or you're using rowing or running or whatever your modality is, are you actually getting fitter and faster? Um, If you are doing those things, then if you're getting fitter, if you're getting stronger and you're getting improved results on the bike, then you don't need necessarily need to do any more training. Um, if you plateau and you feel like your results, uh, you're not getting stronger, you're not getting fitter, then potentially you could include more volume, potentially. But for the average person, like at that absolute top end, if you you should be able to get like super duper fit, like a, enough to like win at the highest level in our sport at with five to six hours of off bike training. So obviously you can do more and some of my clients do do a little bit more at particular times in the season. But if you're just the average person that's listening to this, that's most likely got a job and, and working and maybe running a business or got a family or whatever that looks like for you, like if you can't get super duper fit and super duper strong on five to six hours or less, like honestly, like anywhere between three to six hours, then there's probably something not right in the program. You pro- there's probably you probably need to look at either the intensity of how you're training or um, what you're actually including in in your program. So that's that's what where i would start is look at how many hours you're doing now if you're only doing two hours a week as an example then that's re- that's pretty low like you could easily add in another hour or two obviously if it fits the schedule um and you're probably going to see like a, a big difference in your performance but if you're already doing five hours of training um around about give or take then i'd really be looking at what that what's included in the program and how can I maybe tweak a few things around and adjust it to actually get better results because that's how I write a a program for a client and that's the whole idea of, of training to get better on the bike is to figure out what our biggest physical limitation is. If we can figure that out and then we dedicate the majority of our training volume towards leveling that up, Whilst putting all the other qualities on maintenance doesn't mean we ever we never stop training one quality at all year round. We're always training all of the qualities, but it's kind of just like a mixer. Like we're turning the the turning the the volume up on one or two and turning the volume down on a couple of others just to balance it out. So that would be my biggest tip there and then obviously it's just monitoring how you're recovering if you're getting run down getting sick etc pretty big indication that you're probably doing too much and you need to trim it back and focus more on getting more food in more sleep etc until you become a little bit more resilient so next question is how much zone two volume versus interval training in season so once we're into the race season, how much of either should an athlete be doing? Again, super duper it depends. Question, but it really depends on how much volume you've been doing previously. So how much? Say to um, if you've been training like training year round and doing a proper preseason. Generally speaking, most people are going to do a little bit more volume in the preseason. Not everyone has the ability to be able to do a ton more volume, but patent most people will do a little bit more of zone 2 or cardio training like aerobic cardio training in the preseason. So it kind of depends how much you've done um previously, but a general rule of thumb is whatever that volume is, like how much um, aerobic training you have done to build the level of fitness that you have right now, you can drop that back to somewhere between 50% and all the way down to 25% in some cases and still maintain, you won't get better, you won't improve, you keep improving your capacity obviously, but you can maintain the level that you've built. So example, if you're doing four hours a week, of cardio training you could potentially trim that all the way back to one hour massive difference and still maintain i think most people don't understand how little volume they can actually do without going backwards like we kind of think oh fuck we've missed a session one week <laughs> like it's all going out the window i've, I've got gone backwards that's not the case like the especially when with dirt bikes and in race season the biggest thing that I think is important to realise is you're probably doing a lot more volume on the bike in race season and actually, especially in off-road like you you most likely racing for 2-3 hours at a time depending on the discipline that you race so you're just by having all of that extra intensity in there in race season, you're aerobic capacity will it's very unlikely that it's going to go backwards anyway so you can trim your your cardio volume right back to somewhere in that 25 percent level um and maintain a very high level of aerobic capacity so what i recommend is you never want to like i just mentioned before we never want to For the most part, all of the qualities are going to get trained year round. So you don't want to just stop doing zone two and you don't want to stop doing your interval training. But you and that's my general rule of thumb in season when my clients are racing and there's obviously like I said, they're spending more hours at a higher intensity on the bike. There's also travel that comes I think it's a big thing that people under underestimate the stress um that contributes in the race season is traveling like traveling for like literally sometimes for days either side of a race driving a van across the other side of the country um that adds into that stress so we don't want to we don't need to keep piling in the training stress but we can maintain that level by by doing like really low amounts so you might trim your zone two training right back and may even just getting in shorter efforts like i've mentioned before on the podcast you don't have to go for a two-hour pedal to get the benefit of a zone two training session you can literally go do a 5k row in zone two which takes about 20 minutes or 25 minutes or just do a 20 minute spin on a spin bike or a a road bike or whatever you want to do it's it's still giving you that that benefit and giving you that little bit of maintenance on your aerobic capacity. And the same with the interval training. You don't have to do like all the research says to improve VO2 max. We want to do somewhere between 12 to 16 minutes of intensity. You don't need to do that when when you're just trying to maintain. When you're in season and you're not necessarily trying to get massive gains, you could literally do like four 60-second efforts. As an example, 60 seconds on, 60 seconds off at a like a nine RPE, like a, a near max effort. And that's it. Like it's still super intense. And that's what you want to try and do in season is maintain intensity, but trim the volume right back. We don't want to pile in a ton of volume and add like too much to that bucket in the race season. So that's just an example of what you can do. And the biggest thing is just having a metric That you monitor Uh, and this will be a little bit different for everyone i'm really big on the rower i because the row is the same all of the time some people love to use strava but i reckon strava is like wildly inaccurate Um, but you can use strava if you've got a section maybe like a, a hill sprint or a climb that you do on strava you're gonna know by your time same with the rower like a simple one with on a rower is four 500 meter repeats with a two minute rest in between. Again, that's not like a super duper amount of volume, it won't like add a massive amount of stress to that bucket. I'm not saying you need to do that every single week, but you might do that session once a month, do four 500 meter repeats with a two minute rest once a month, and you're gonna know if you're maintaining your aerobic capacity. If your times are, if you can hit reasonably like within sort of 5% or 10% at the, at the high end um, of your times, then you know like, okay, I'm pretty well maintaining my aerobic capacity. If your times are going backwards massively, then you obviously probably need to do a little bit more. You're detrained. So you're probably going to have to include a little bit more volume to, to bring that back up potentially. So yeah, they'd be my biggest tips would be you can go like way lower than what you've been doing to build it and have some sort of metric that you check in on every few weeks or once a month potentially um, that you can monitor and say, okay, I'm, I'm I'm within reach of maintaining my output and then just adjust accordingly. So next question is more about strength training and it was what are some good body weight options if I don't have a gym available? So really good question. When you're training just with your body weight, if you don't have any weights like dumbbells, kettlebells, nothing at all, you're really going to have to learn how to leverage your own body weight. So to do that, we're gonna definitely have to use full range ranges of motion, and probably gonna have to do some higher reps. Like when you you've got a barbell and you can load the thing right up and use a lot of external load, you can do like get a really really good training stimulus doing two or three reps, two or three reps of a push up or a body weight squat. Probably not gonna do that much. So you more than likely one you're gonna have to just do higher volume, so higher reps. Two, you want to be using full ranges of motion. So no half reps, like full ranges of motion and then learn how to leverage your body weight. So some examples are like deficit push-ups. So if you've got like a couple of um, little steps or something that you can put your hands on and then doing a push-up where your chest still goes all the way down to the floor. So it's opening your chest right up. So it's even deeper than a normal push-up where your chest touches the floor. Again, you're leveraging a, a greater range of motion. They're a, a, f- a little bit harder to do than a normal push-up. Uh, unilateral exercises, so any sort of single leg squat, um, a simple ones like a Bulgarian split squat, a rear foot elevated split squat where you've got your foot up on a step. They're reasonably easy to do at body weight and then you can progress to doing like full single leg exor- exercises like pistol squats, shrimp squats, where you're fully squatting down on one leg your whole body weight they're actually like super challenging I do them a bit in my warm-up sometimes um, they're very hard if you think like I weigh 80 kilos and if I'm doing a, a pistol squat or a shrimp squat on one leg like it's pretty close to 80 kilos of weight on one leg to, to get all the way up again from full range of motion back up to the top so including exercise like, like that, like Harrop Curls. The, the, one of the most difficult things when you don't have weights is training uh, the back of the body, like your, your posterior chain. So including some exercises like harp Curls or Nordic Curls, you need something to hook your feet under when you do them. But they're a great exercise for training the hamstrings, the glutes, etc. Um, so I'd definitely be including them. So they're kind of like your body weight options. And then what you can do is find something, just find anything to use as external load. You can do farmer's carries with a couple of jerry cans, like two 20 litre jerry cans filled with fuel or water or whatever you've got there. That's 40 kilos. Like doing farmer's carries with them is a pretty tough exercise. And then like a super simple one that pretty much anyone could do is make your own sandbag. So get like a big solid duffel bag and fill the thing up with sand or fill it with rocks or whatever you have available. And like you can literally fill a a decent sized duffel bag up with sand. It might weigh 50, 60, maybe more kilos. And that's like a random object that you can use as external load. You can hold it on your chest like in a like a front rack grip where you're just sort of hugging it onto your chest and do squats with it you can throw it over one of your shoulders you can put it on the back of your shoulders like there's heaps of ways or that's i shouldn't say heaps but that's one really good way to actually bring in some external load when you don't have any equipment basically cost you nothing to all it's going to cost you is the cost of the duffel bag you'd go down the river or go down the park and steal some from the sand pit <laughs> find some find some sand somewhere to fill the thing up that's a really good option um, it's just trying if you don't have equipment um, it's trying to find some other stuff that you've got laying around in your backyard or or wherever you might be training that you can actually utilize as external load um, but yeah like then it's using challenging yourself in other ways like unilateral exercises full ranges of motion and then you're probably gonna to challenge yourself like a lot with those more body weight options then the reps are definitely going to be higher they're going to be like around that 15 to 20 rep range give or take to really challenge yourself and make those exercises really hard um so yeah they'd be my biggest tips there def like honestly you can get... If you go on, like, even on Instagram or YouTube and, like, have a look at some of the, like, the gymnastics, even breakdancers and parkour guys, that how strong they are, how strong some people get training, like, gymnastics style training, especially for the upper body, how strong you can actually get just with your own body weight. Pretty crazy. It's, pr- it's crazy what some people can do, how strong they are in their upper body. Um, and they're not benching... 150 kilos that's for sure they just do they know how to leverage their body weight so um that'd be somewhere where you could do a little bit of research into that if you don't have um weights and external load to challenge yourself with um best way to train balance so the best way to train balance is by improving overall movement competency so if we've got a good base foundation of movement competency we should be able to balance in certain situations pretty well the thing with balance is it's specific that's why i'm real it's specific to the skill so like obviously balancing on a dirt bike is completely different to balancing on a skateboard you could be the best skateboarder in the world and absolutely suck at riding a dirt bike and vice versa you can be an awesome dirt bike rider and absolutely suck at skateboarding because they're a completely different skill so that's my whole thing and that's why i'm not really into the whole balance training thing and the bosu ball thing and like the foot pegs on the springs that like we're trying to replicate what the bike is because you can't replicate what the bike is the riding the bike is riding the bike there's nothing else that's going to replicate it So the whole purpose of our off-bike training is to ensure that we're not limited in any way in our physical capacity. Then when we get on the dirt bike, we want to actually work on technique and skill on the bike. So there's plenty of drills you can do on the bike to actually improve balance on the dirt bike. you're just going out to the track and just burning fuel with no intent just trying to twist the throttle harder and you don't have very good balance on a dirt bike it's going to take a really 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 long time to improve it if you actually go to the track and say and identify that okay my balance isn't that great i need to actually slow down work on my technique and figure out what are the inputs that i need to give this bike to get it to feel more stable when i'm trying to rail through a rut um so obviously what we do like racing off road it's a lot it's very similar to motocross it's more higher speed like the balance really comes in when you're trying to rail a rut so railing a rut is a skill you've got to give the bike a particular set of inputs to get the bike to go around the corner without either falling over or tucking the front or dabbing your foot or whatever that might be so it's different to trials riding or different to hard enduro like they, like a hard enduro rider or a trials rider their balance is more static they spend a lot of time on the spot like preparing to, to tackle a section they're, they're balancing and they're going a lot slower so, so how they balance is different to how we have to balance when you're trying to rail a rut in third gear as an example So in off-road, we probably get a little bit of both. Like if you've got a technical track or you're doing more like technical style trails where you've got rock gardens and stuff, you're definitely going to have a bit more of that, that slower speed balance. But most people where they say they struggle with balance is a rut and it's when they're going a lot faster. So again, it's just learning the skills on the bike to actually get the bike to turn and go around the rut without falling over and and building your confidence up there when it comes to off bike training the best thing you can you can do is like basically just get stronger and give yourself more movement options can you I, i did a post about this on my instagram last week i think but can you squat can we perform a good quality squat pattern can we perform a good quality hip hinge pattern can we perform both of them on a single leg like Performing a single leg hinge, like a single leg RDL or even a pistol squat, really, really hard. Like, you don't need to add any unstable surface in there to make that, to challenge someone to balance on one leg and move their body in either a squat or a hinge pattern. If we can do those four things, okay, can we actually add some external load? Can we do that with some weight? Let's add a couple of dumbbells to that. Once we can get up to 50% of our body weight, okay, let's get the barbell out and and keep progressing. Let's keep getting stronger. When you can perform those movements under load, you're going to find it. that's going to give you a good foundation of movement competency. And you should find that balancing is quite easy for you. When you've got like a big limitation, like a muscular limitation, like a weakness in a particular area, that's potentially when you can struggle with balance. If you've got like a really, like anyone who's ever injured a knee, if you've tweaked your knee, you will know when your quad doesn't fire properly, You will be when you try and stand on one leg, your leg's just wobbling around, like shaking like crazy. And the reason why that is, is because our brain is trying to protect itself. It's not sending the, a very strong signal to the quad because it doesn't want to injure the knee it's trying to protect the knee so it down regulates the signal that it's sending to the quad and that's when you get that instability and it starts shaking around how do you fix that you got to get stronger so you've got to regress the intensity of the movement and start to build more strength again in the quad and over time the, the quad gets stronger becomes the knee becomes more stable and we can balance better so if there's any outstanding weaknesses in the body they could potentially contribute to having poor balance so that's again that's the whole premise of training off the bike is okay can i perform these movements at a decent quality decent movement quality can i perform them with external load for most people um if you're completely untrained which most people are that ride dirt bikes, like just doing that is going to provide massive benefits. Once you can do that, then we can start bringing in some plyometrics. So that's when we're starting to move the body around. So obviously when we're strength training, everything's kind of fixed. Our feet are fixed to the floor. Once we've built a decent foundation of strength, we can then begin to move our body. Okay, can I perform some plyometrics? Can I do some hops, some bounds, side to side, moving forward. And that, that's one of the best things we can do to help improve our balance is including plyometrics in the program. We don't need to add um, an unstable surface in there, I don't believe, to, to help improve balance. If we want... If, when we want to bring the unstable surface in, that's when we go get on the bike. We go and actually practice getting better on the dirt bike um so for kids like i'm pretty sure the the person who sent this question in was a parent actually like asking for their kid for kids like one of the best things they can do and especially for kids that are moto kids is potentially just go play some other sports they're going to get that uh, i guess build up that movement capacity if all you've ever done if a kid started racing dirt bikes when they were five and they've only ever ridden dirt bikes like it is it's don't get me wrong it's gnarly what we do on a dirt bike but the actual the movements that we have to perform on a dirt bike are actually fairly simple and like a very small part of what the body can actually is actually capable of so if for a younger for kids like one of the best things they can do is just go play basketball or something go play basketball or go play soccer and just learn to move their body um around a little bit more that's going to give them some some really great benefits as well and then obviously like i've said just building that that foundation of strength and, and plyometrics um that's that's how i come at the training balance thing so like i say if there's a problem with with balance we need to just figure out what it is it's pretty easy to watch someone move in the gym um and and assess if there's a a massive weakness there somewhere or something outstanding that we need to address off the bike and then it's also pretty easy to watch someone ride their dirt bike and look at their technique and watch them ride around a rut and see what's going on and give them some feedback um, so they, they'd be the two biggest tips if I if you're listening to this and you want to improve your balance, it's figuring out which one of those. Like, is it your movement capacity, your movement competency, because you can improve that in the gym, or is it your actually, actually your riding, actually your riding technique, and and your bil- your ability to actually give the bike the correct input. So, next question was on breath work breath work to stop riding with my mouth open because I get a sore throat so the biggest one I would say there would be trying to do some nose breathing um nose the thing with nose breathing is like there's a lot of people out there and I probably I I actually went down the nose breathing rabbit hole there for a while and, and people kind of like a lot of um I think it's oxygen advantage. Like they, if you go, they've got the nose breathing gears. Um, uh, what would you call it? Model. Um, they like, like they kind of preach nose breathing as God's gift to friggin' aerobic performance and that it's going to cure or just like crazily improve um, our ability to perform. And I think there is certainly some benefits to nose breathing, but at the end of the day like our mouth and our nose it's pretty easy to see there's a very big difference in the amount the volume that we can get in through our nose it's a lot more restricted than our mouth so we're going depending on your level of fitness everyone's going to have a level of intensity where the breathing through the nose is not going to provide enough oxygen for them to continue to perform or or keep increasing intensity so that's going to be different for everyone if you're a little bit less if you're more untrained and you've never practiced nose breathing maybe that that's fairly low for you if you've actually trained if you've got if you do a fair bit of aerobic training and you've potentially done some nose breathing in that training then you might be able to maintain a higher intensity and still nose breathe but even for anyone no matter how fit you are you're going to get a point get to a point where the intensity becomes high enough that you're like okay i have to mouth breathe now and there's no doubt that riding dirt bikes is super intense so depending on the duration of the event that we're racing in like sometimes and depending and it depends on the track too like how much effort we're having to put in to go the speed we want to go on the track depending on the obstacles how tight how open the track is. So well, I guess my point is you're not like nose breathing is a great tool and it's potentially a way to manage our output and our intensity, but there's going to be times when we, we need to go to at a higher intensity and we're going to have to mouth breathe. So you could practice nose breathing. A sort of an, an in between is nose in, so breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. That's sort of an in between to full nose breathing, like in and out the nose. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, like you're going to just have to get used to using your mouth sometimes to breathe on a dirt bike, I think, like especially when the intensity is high. So if you're getting a dry throat, like I'd like I'd be looking at if it's getting to the point where you're getting a sore throat, like I'd really be looking at your hydration, like how much are you actually drinking? Um, potentially that could be something going on as well. Um, yeah. It's not like, honestly, I do a little bit of nose breathing when I'm riding, but when like I'm actually trying to send it and ride fast, then I have to go to mouth breathing. Um, and it's, hasn't personally for me it hasn't been an issue to the point where it's it's made me had to get a sore throat that's for sure um so yeah that's just something to think about there next question is about three hour race strategy so this particular person said that in a three hour race they either push too hard and crash early or they finish feeling like they could have ridden a lot faster so they're trying to manage their output for a three hour race um, and they just ask for advice. So two biggest things, one is if you can actually ride faster, if you feel like you can ride faster, but you can't maintain it, you just really need to look at your fitness. That's the, your lowest hanging fruit, um, would be getting actually, and again, it's figuring out what's your biggest limitation? Is it actually strength? Do you need to get stronger or do you need to improve your cardio performance? Um, and then trying to include a little bit more of it. Maybe it's both. Maybe you just need to get fitter overall, strength and cardio. So it's just devote potentially devoting a little bit more energy to improving your performance because if you can ride faster, but then you drop off, then... There's obviously something holding you back from continuing that. So most commonly it's either going to be fitness or your nutrition. So I sent out an email to the list about that on Monday, I think. But if like basically they're the two big things. Like if if you if you bonk at the end of a three hour race and you can't finish at the intensity you want to finish at, it's either because you haven't fueled your body correctly and you haven't got enough energy. If you can tick that box, if you're definitely sure that you've taken in enough calories, enough water, and enough electrolytes, and you still hit the wall, then it's most more likely a fitness issue. So you need to actually improve um, your fitness off the bike, potentially um, do some more volume on the bike, potentially, again, it's hard to say not knowing each individual situation, but again for the average person getting out on the dirt bike's not always that easy it's not the easiest thing to do is just to go and ride three days a week for, for most people most people just only get to ride for a day on the weekend so you, your lowest hanging fruit in improving your conditioning is your off-bike training so being as consistent as you can be with your strength and conditioning and improving your physical capacity so you can maintain a higher intensity throughout the race and then ensuring that you actually get enough calories electrolytes in to fuel that effort for the duration so they your two biggest things and then it's also just going to come down to experience too like if you have never if you haven't actually raced that many endurance events and three hour events you're kind of not not really going to know how hard like how hard can i push um especially if you've had a few events where you've hit the wall then that's potentially going to hold you back because you're like oh shit i don't want to go too hard because maybe i'm going to hit the wall again so it's about addressing those limitations and off the bike and ensuring you're leveling them up and then it's just comes down to getting more experience on the bike in those race situations so maybe it's doing some more club events or something or finding some two-hour cross-country events that are a little bit shorter Um, i know a lot of the clubs down in victoria do their club days are two hours Um, i know in america the two hours are a big thing too um for more of like the regional and state series um events so there you can get without having to put yourself through a three hour you can kind of build up a little bit more and get some more experience in a two hour race of how to actually pace yourself um but generally speaking like your 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 breathing is like we just talked about with breathing getting an understanding of where you're at at an intensity level with your breathing is super important so it's it's going to be a little bit different for everyone and this again comes down to your training off the bike and and sort of pushing yourself a little bit in your cardio efforts and getting a feel like endurance is all feel especially when we're on a dirt bike like you're not it's not like you're in a triathlon and you, you're riding along looking at your Garmin saying okay i'm i'm maintaining 36 kilometers on my cycle or i'm running four and a half minute k's in the run um you don't have anything as a guide So it's all feel on the dirt bike. You've got to learn to pace yourself off feel. So you want to be riding as fast as you possibly can ride without exceeding the level of intensity that you've built the capacity to handle, essentially. So the best way to do that is be aware of how you're breathing. Like, where are you at with your breathing? Are you feeling short of breath? Are you feeling like you're gassing out? Because if you are, and it's only the first hour in the race you're probably going too hard. You probably need to just gather yourself, trim it back a bit, slow your breathing down, get some more airing um, and be aware of how you're managing that. So, and again, like as your capacity improves off the bike with your off-bike training, that intensity will increase. You'll be able to maintain a higher intensity without um, losing control of your breathing. So that would be my biggest, I guess, that's the easiest tool you've got when you're riding to monitor where you're at in terms of your intensity is your breathing and then like like another little bonus tip i suppose like endurance is mental like three hour races are fucking hard you every single rider out there even the best the guys that win they're fighting that mental battle like that you're going to get a point at some point in that race in a 3-hour race where your your brain says you need to slow down or you get a little bit of a cramp or whatever it might be if you go down that rabbit hole and you're like oh fuck I've got a cramp fuck I've got a cramp fuck I've got a cramp It's only going to get worse and you're only going to slow down. You need to find a way to block out all of those things or any of those things that come up and be able to push through. Um, Again, my biggest tip for that is the breath. Like you can always come back to your breathing. All of those other things are just distractions. Like any pain that you're feeling, thinking about someone catching you or it's just taking focus away from actually riding the dirt bike and coming back to our breathing is a super simple tool that we've always got there. Like we've always, we can always just come back and, and focus on our breathing. That's going to allow us to block out any of that noise and bring our focus back into what we're actually doing. And that is trying to ride the dirt bike as fast as we possibly can. So potentially that's something you could work on is like, don't feel like you've failed because you get to a point in the race where you don't feel like you want to go any or you feel like you can't go any further because that basically happens to every person the people who win just find a way to block that out so you've got to prepare yourself for that be prepared for that situation what are you going to do in that situation when You feel a cramp coming on or maybe you clip a tree and like blow a knuckle out. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to just say, oh, fuck it, three hands in the air and give up? Or are you going to find a way to push through it? So prepare yourself for those situations. So then when they arise, it's like, okay, I knew this was going to happen. I'm ready for it. I'm fucking, I'm focusing on my breathing and I'm pushing through and I'm going to keep riding. Before you know it, you'll have ticked off another couple of laps. You'll be back in the flow state and you can keep pushing through they're just probably my biggest tips in that situation like it is endurance is mental like I was talking to a guy today a guy I went riding with today his brother has been like a top five um outright competitor at Hatter multiple times barely trains off the bike barely trains he's just an he's an animal mental beast So the average person couldn't do that, but he is that mentally strong that he can just push himself to ride that fast for four hours without doing very much off-bike training at all. So obviously we need to be fit and strong. I'm a massive advocate of that. But at the end of the day, all of those things are just preparing us for that situation. And they, they should, like training is meant to make us more mentally resilient. So we're prepared. So when we get in that situation, we're like, okay, I'm ready for this. I've done the fucking work. I know when that gets to that last hour of the race, I start rubbing my hands together and start picking people off because I've done the work to be able to to push in this last part of the race. So again, it's just being prepared for that. So one last question. This one was around heat stress. Um, When does getting too hot become dangerous this person actually emailed this question in and they they mentioned um an incident that happened in australia i think it was a couple of years ago now it might have even been in 2020 before we actually started getting lots of races cancelled in covid but anyway tim tim coleman had a accident in a hard enduro well shouldn't say it. it was not really an accident but he got from what I understand, anyway, I don't know the situation super duper um, closely, but from what I understand, he suffered heat stroke in, or a form of heat stroke in a hard enduro. And like he was in a really bad way. He was in a coma for a couple of weeks, I'm pretty sure. Um, it was touch and go there for a while. He's, he's completely recovered now, from what I understand. But it was, yeah, definitely touch and go there for a while. So the person who sent this question in sort of referenced that that incident and said that he competed in an event and he started over or was getting really hot and he wondered at what point it becomes dangerous because he'd obviously been aware of, of Tim's accident. So <clears throat> there's no doubt that uh, like riding dirt bikes the bike's obviously hot and we've also got a shitload of gear on. So uh, protective gear. So it's the ventilation is not great. So our, our body's like obviously trying to get rid of the heat and, and sweat and it's hard for it to do that when we're covered in riding gear. So that's like basically our body's like number one uh, job in all situations is is to maintain its temperature so when we're when it's really really cold it's trying to um like if you've ever had an ice bath your body actually constricts all the blood vessels and tries to keep the blood in close because it it's trying to keep the organs like our heart our lungs all those important things that we need for survival it's trying to keep all the blood in really close and obviously when it's when we're really hot It's the opposite of that. It's sending more blood around to the blood vessels because it's trying to cool itself down. So it's our body's number one job is to try and maintain um, temperature. So I personally think the, the most important thing to avoiding it, avoiding some sort of heat stroke or heat stress is how we hydrate on a day-to-day level so it's like pre-hydration um again i think i did a podcast on this the other week but just like if you don't drink much generally speaking if your hydration is very low and you don't drink much water and then you think that you're just going to go and st- like skull water the day before a race that's like basically doing nothing and if you're only drinking a heap of plain water and you're not including le- electrolytes it could actually make the situation worse it could actually dilute that sodium balance in the blood and you could actually have a very bad time in, in an endurance event so again it comes down to how we hydrate on a day-to-day basis and is that adequate to to support that stress load on our body uh, from our our day-to-day environment whether that's training whether that's whether we live in a in a humid climate where we're sweating all the time obviously um those things are going to come into play um and stress like stress just from any form it increases our body's electrolyte needs so if we're like overstressed and under hydrated potentially we're going to suffer um from either dehydration or heat stroke much quicker than the version of us that is well hydrated on a day-to-day basis. So when does it become dangerous? Like you would know if you actually, (laughs) like it it became dangerous in that situation for Tim, obviously, um, where he actually passed out. If If you're able to still ride your dirt bike, without like making any major mistakes and crashing then i would say it's not to that point where it's dangerous um your body can tolerate it um obviously in that situation of tim he got to that point where he actually did pass out um and it was too much for his body obviously so at what point that crossover happens, you're not really going to know. Like if, if you start making mistakes um, and you're, you're not able to pick lines, you're crashing, you're making silly little mistakes, then potentially um, you're on that cusp of, of heat stroke and, and dehydration. Um, but yeah, it's going to be different for every person. The, the biggest, I would, personally i would think that in australia like i had some clients that raced deep well um this year which is like a mx desert race so it's out in the middle of australia in alice springs so i'm pretty sure it was 42 degrees um and they got some rain so it was quite humid from what i understand and they do three 30 minute motos so super intense but they are getting a break in between but i guess my point is like no one's getting heat stroke up there like that's probably in australia that's probably the hardest thing you could do in australia in terms of a race that's in heat in like crazy hot conditions um and like i haven't heard of anyone getting heat stroke and having issues up there like it's obviously hard and 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 people are suffering for sure. But there's not like people are having accidents every year and, and, or people are getting medivac out of there from heat strokes. So in Australia, for the most part, like if we, if we exclude that race, it's kind of like a bit of a one-off, that thing. Like it's in the middle of summer in the desert. For the most part, our races in Australia are between like March through to October. So they're not the warmest months in Australia. I personally don't think we have conditions in Australia that I would be worried about getting heat stroke. If again that caveat is that as long as our hydration and electrolyte is adequate on a day to day basis. Um I yeah, I just don't think the the heat and the demands in Australia I think that we the body can more than tolerate what we what we do for the most part in australia again it just comes down to being hydrated adequately so if you know it's going to be hot on a weekend then obviously you need to be preparing for that if you're training in victoria and it's 21 degrees every day and you're going to go up and do a race in Rockhampton, as an example, and it's 33 degrees and humid, then you need to, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be different for you. So you need to prepare for that um, and make sure you're in, including enough hydration and enough electrolytes. And like in a situation like that, you could, if you're living in a cold climate, but you know you've got to go, go race somewhere in a hot climate, like exposing yourself to a sauna or something like that. So you can just get a little bit acclimated to to hot, to heat and hotter environments potentially could have a little bit of benefit. Um, but again, like I say, I don't think in Australia anyway, I can't really speak for for the usa because i've never been to any races over there obviously so i don't exactly know what the conditions are like all of the time over there but i'd say what we get exposed to in australia I like personally i wouldn't be worried about getting heat stroke to the point of it causing any damage to me um again because i'm i'm more than confident that my hydration and electrolyte intake is adequate to be prepared for that um like I say, I don't know a whole lot about that Tim Coleman's accident and or incident, I should say. and I'm definitely um, open to being incorrect about this, but I I'm from what I understand it happened within the first hour of the race. So the race had only just started and within an hour um, that like Tim, collapsed or and had to like they had to get the ambulance air ambulance in there i'd like my i guess um evaluation of that would be that like if it happened that quickly like i'd kind of maybe understand it if it was at the end of the four hour like if you'd been out there grinding for four hours um in a hard enduro in hot conditions then yeah like potentially push yourself to that point but If it happened that quickly, I would have to think that that he was potentially dehydrated or not. Not his stores weren't topped off before he came into that event. Like he wasn't fully hydrated and and electrolytes topped off coming into that event. If that happened within sixty minutes, like sixty minutes isn't that long a time. Like you could go out into the middle of the desert and not have a water bottle and you, you're going to last more than 60 minutes. Most people will. You're not going to just, yeah, be cactus in 60 minutes. So maybe I'm, in, I'm incorrect on that. I don't know, but that's just my point of view. If that could happen to someone that quickly, I would say that it potentially wasn't the actual situation as much as being depleted, coming in, into the event potentially potentially so again the lesson there is it's just you want to be need to be onto that stuff need to be onto our hydration onto our electrolytes and again like to circle back like I said at the the start of the that first question like how much exercise is too much it's being aware of that stress bucket like if we have a high stress lifestyle if we're training, A lot if we've got a lot of stuff going on then one of the biggest things that we need to include more of is electrolytes and and hydration Um, super duper important Um, I think it yeah most people severely underestimate how much of an impact stress just day-to-day stress has on electrolyte needs hydration needs so that is it for the training questions like i said if if anyone else has got any more questions there send them through the goal will be i'll do at the start of each month i'll do a QA podcast and we'll answer everyone's questions thank you for everyone that sent them in I um, hope you got some value out of those answers and we will see you on the next podcast episode